0: What we're really trying to focus now on is complex estate and elder law, and what that really means is having a plan, not just for divesting yourself of your assets after you die, but really having a continuing care plan during your retirement and making sure that the right people are empowered to help you.
1: You're listening to The Legal Mastermind Podcast with your hosts, Ryan Klein and Chase Williams, the go-to podcast for learning from the experts in the legal community about effective ways to grow and manage your law firm.
2: Welcome to another episode of The Legal Mastermind Podcast. I am here with my co-host, Ryan Klein, and today we have David Miller. And David Miller is a very interesting lawyer. He actually started off in finance, switched careers to become a lawyer, and started working in securities litigation. Now he works with elder law, estate planning, and trusts, and David really does have a diverse background and he's really the perfect guest today to chat about our topic, which is how to expand your practice into a Medicaid practice. Welcome to the Legal Mastermind Podcast, David. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. I know I gave a a little brief explanation about your background. Can you uh, dive in a little bit more and tell us a little bit more about how you fell into your current practice?
0: All right. So uh, the law is actually my second career. My first career was in finance and investment banking. In fact, I worked very heavily on collateralized debt obligations, which uh, some of you might remember as the, the fund instruments that help us get into the financial collapse of 2008. When that financial collapse occurred, I was actually finishing up law school and because of my experience and my background, that really segued very nicely into a securities litigation practice that I've been doing since about 2010. And you know that practice uh, was very enjoyable. It really thrived during the uh, post-financial collapse world, but there was a, a couple of things of note there. One is we had a pure contingency based practice and we were looking for ways to kind of diversify our income stream. Uh, and the other observation we had is that we, we represented a lot of individuals that uh, were retired, or advanced in years, and because of a decline in their physical or mental acuity had really had a lot of damage done to their retirement and their savings, and sometimes was totally wiped out. You know, this could have been anywhere from falling victim to an investment scam, uh, unscrupulous financial advisors, or even still trying to make their own investment decisions And they just didn't have the mental capacity to really be doing that properly anymore. And so they had damage done to them or uh, in Some cases did it to themselves. And unfortunately, for a lot of these people, this type of damage could have been avoided through some better estate planning. And so we, we teamed up with uh, my partner, Tom McCullough, who's an attorney CPA, has been doing estate planning for 30 years. And what we're really trying to focus now on is complex estate and elder law. And what that really means is having a plan, not just for divesting yourself of your assets after you die, but really having a continuing care plan during your retirement and making sure that the right people are empowered to
1: help you. Yeah, I was uh, graduating with my finance degree when the CDOs and derivatives ruined my my future uh, aspirations. (laughs) (laughs) So, That's uh, interesting. You saw in the forefront. So kind of taking that expertise, you kind of mentioned a good point because I've seen some instances of uh, personal injury lawyers saying, you know, I'm a lawyer, but also I'm an MD and that can, you know, benefit your case. Do you feel like having a financial background has helped you help your clients even from a legal standpoint? Well, in the litigation practice, it absolutely did.
0: You know, I was a registered representative, so I was very familiar with the sales practices and the rules and regulations governing the industry going into it. But more importantly than that, I had some experience with very complex securities and really developed a a knack for figuring out how securities work, how they don't work, who's making money, how are they being made, how is that money being made, and what are the real risks out there? And translating that into a you know, litigation practice really put myself and our firm at a at a much higher competitive edge because you know, we were coming in with, we, we could almost act as our own experts in a lot of, of ways. And in smaller cases, we actually have acted as our own experts for our clients. We work in arbitration practice so you can get away with stuff like that. But Just being able to do that is uh, very helpful for the client because you understand these concepts at the get-go, but it also reduces the cost of litigation and uh, reduces the cost of expert fees, if you can keep uh, a lot of that work in house. And so we're not sending money out to experts to analyze a case all the time.
1: We can do that ourselves. That sounds really like a, like a value added benefit working with you. Is that something that you you kind of advertise or is that something that maybe comes up in conversations when you have initial consultations or anything along those lines?
0: Yes, absolutely. That's, that's one of, uh, from the litigation practice, that's one of the main things that we have talked about is the fact that most of the attorneys were had a finance background and had been in the industry and knew the ins and outs and the pitfalls. And that uh, really does resonate with the clients. They know that it's not just kind of some lawyer off the street taking you know, whatever comes to the door, that this really is a specialty. And I think clients really respond to attorneys who really specialize on you know one or two or three things rather than just kind of whatever comes through the door, uh, we were able to distinguish our spells through our specialties. There's good and bad to it. On the one hand, you're out there in a very niche market and you can put yourself at the top of that market, but you're also very dependent upon that very small niche market. so what which is why we wanted to actually diversify into the estate planning field and specifically try and figure out uh, how we could uh, distinguish ourselves in the estate planning field from the hundreds of other estate planners out there in the Houston market.
2: So I think one of the things we want to address first is one, why expand into Medicaid? And then two, how?
0: You know, some background facts need to be out there to, to understand what the Medicaid practice is. You know, the number one, Fact is, you know, the world in the United States is getting older. Obviously, advances in medicine, medical technology, medical practices has expanded the life expectancy. I think it, right after World War II, the average life expectancy was 68. Now it's almost 79. There are currently 52 million Americans that are over the age of 65, and that number is supposed to double in the next 40 years. So if you're looking at a married couple, the fact of the matter is there's a very very high likelihood that one of them is going to live to age 85 or beyond and with that there is coming ever increasing costs you know the traditional wisdom used to be that your expenses go down in retirement Uh, your kids are gone your mortgage is paid off but the reality is costs are actually going up during retirement not down and that's because of these medical advances medicine's expensive Aging is expensive. Over time, our health declines, and whether those declines are physical or cognitive, uh, the decline in health comes with increasing costs of care. The average in the nation for nursing homes is $7,500 to $8,500 per month. And in Houston, we're actually lucky. We're much lower than the average, but it's still $5,000 to $6,200 a month, and that's just for one individual. And so if you're talking with a married couple there's a very high likelihood that one of them is going to develop some sort of physical disability or cognitive disability whether it's alzheimer's or some degenerative disease that's going to require some sort of skilled nursing care and because medicine keeps us alive longer that nursing care might be a very long time which is going to be very costly you know it used to be Estate planning was you retire at 65, you drop dead of a heart attack at 68, and your estate planning was about passing on your accumulated wealth to the next generation while minimizing tax burdens. You know, what our firm's looking at and what we're focusing on is less of how do you pass things on after you die, and more about having a plan in place for while you're still alive and dealing with these capacity issues and end of life costs. And so we're, in, we're focused on ensuring that the right people are empowered to help someone as their mental and physical capacity declines, that we have the mechanisms to pass control, that we have instructions for the agents and the caregivers as to how they want to age and how they want to be cared for, and making sure there's a plan in place to fund
1: this. So it seems like you know, the firm expanded into doing Medicaid because you you kind of filled a a gap maybe in the community or Houston or beyond in people that needed, you know, legal help or assistance or representation for those issues. So how how do you kind of find that gap or that opportunity for your firm to pursue that that line of work? Are you finding out about it from former or current clientele or, or other circles of law firm owners and lawyers, or do you just kind of look at trends altogether and maybe use your own intuition?
0: Well, you know, we were actually introduced to this practice. This is not a very common practice out there. We're dealing with Medicaid, uh, we're dealing with the government rules, and you're actually dealing with two sets of rules. You're dealing with the federal rules and with the state rules. You know, there's just a lot of attorneys don't want to mess with it. It's complex, it's labor intensive. It does take a lot of upfront investment, but once we were introduced to it, uh, it really clicked for us and made sense. You know, it's it's really an underserved market. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, you're gonna have there's a lot of people out there that are very wealthy, uh, that aren't gonna have to worry about these issues. They can private pay. All right. And then there are some people that are good planners who really were were on the ball, made the right investments, maybe they bought insurance products, long-term care insurance or something like that, which is going to supplement the cost of their care. But the reality is most of the people that we come into contact with are not super wealthy and they've been putting off insurance they maybe thought about long-term care but the reality is it just wasn't it wasn't a priority until it was and by the time they're looking at okay well now I need to get insurance it's prohibitively expensive or they're they're not going to be qualified for it anyway And so you have a a large body of people that have not inconsequential assets. We're talking, you know, when we do Medicaid pre-planning, we're we're working with anybody from, you know, $500,000 in assets to even, you know, a couple of millions of dollars. And they can't necessarily self-fund their care costs, but they have enough there to protect. And they don't want to see all of their wealth disappear into a nursing home and then not have anything to pass on to their children or worse have all of their wealth disappear into a nursing home and still have one or two years of care that they have to pay for and now they're completely 100 percent dependent on the government uh, where they have no control and no flexibility and that is actually where most americans fall in and that's i mean we find like we said you know number of people uh, over age 65 is going to double, and it's 52 million people. Most of those people don't have a plan to pay for long-term care, and the system of retirement that we have set up in this country just does not support these costs. There's only four ways you're going to pay for it. It's going to be your private pay because you're wealthy, insurance pays, your family member pays until they're tapped out, or the government pays. What we're trying to do is find the best combination of Uh, private pay and the government pays that we can protect these assets and still keep a cushion for our clients to supplement their care, supplement their cost of living, and then hopefully pass
2: something on to their their heirs. So it sounds like this is a a pretty different approach from some of the other offerings you're offering clients. So what are some tactics that you're using to to bring in new business for these specific types of cases?
0: So our, you know, the, the hardest... You know, once we have gotten a client uh, to understand the cost, understand the numbers, understand the investment, these plans almost sell themselves. It becomes a no brainer. I'll put $10,000 into a plan now. I'm going to be able to leverage tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of government benefits. And if I end up not needing that for some reason, well, I still walk out the door with a very comprehensive estate plan that I can use anyway. So that's really, you know, selling that value proposition to a client is not that difficult. The ROIs are, are pretty apparent. The problem that we have is getting clients past kind of the mental roadblocks. And, you know, there's, there's twofold, right? So, you know, if I'm a lawyer and you know, my client's getting sued, they know they have to hire me right? There's an immediate tangible benefit of, of the services that I can provide because there's an immediate need. With estate planning, there isn't an immediate need. Um, you know, most people like to avoid the topic of death. Uh, they certainly don't want to think about being incapacitated or being in a nursing home. And so that's just something that they're really going to avoid. And they just assume not spend, you know, write a big check over to us, and get a stack of paper back. Uh, That's not fun. That's not exciting. It's a very depressing topic. And so it's getting past that roadblock, which is our main challenge. And so how we do that is through education. And that's educating our clients and that's educating their financial advisors too, which is a very important part of this process. So there's a couple of ways that we do that. One of the ways is we do workshops. Uh, We have traditionally done these in in office but with coronavirus and new technology we're actually trying to do more of these web-based kind of zoom meetings webinars that kind of thing to get out there and start talking generally about estate planning generally about these concepts get clients thinking about these things before they even come in and meet with us so that when they actually do come in and meet with us then you know, they're already primed for these types of topics. They're not gonna be taken off guard. You know, if you pull somebody off the street and say, hey, let's talk about death, dying, and you being incapacitated, oh, and by the way, we're gonna talk about ways to bankrupt you so you can get Medicaid, you know, they're gonna look at you in horror and run away. But we gotta have them primed and thinking about these issues well in advance of meeting with us. And so we do that through educational workshops. Uh, and we also do that through financial advisors. We spend a lot of time going through the numbers and uh, strategies with financial advisors and showing how that can be value added to their clients so that they're comfortable saying to to their clients, yes, go see these guys and start talking about alternative strategies to fund long-term care.
1: Uh, speaking about educating and workshops, and obviously you're extremely knowledgeable about this. You know, speaking eloquently about the very, very spe- specific parts about you know Medicaid and this uh, part of your your practice. For you know anyone listening that is considering, you know, what what is something specific I can move into and become an expert on it? Yeah, how do you advise someone to become an expert on something specific and then ethically go on to be able to provide that legal service? Like, what did you have to do to become an expert in something? more specific like this?
0: Well, like I so said, we were, we were introduced to this practice. Uh, so, you know, we kind of had a, a leg up in terms of a network of attorneys that we worked with nationwide had done this type of thing. They had formed trust that they use. Uh, They had kind of templates about, you know, what the, the rules were and the regulations were. But with this practice in particular, you know, we really have to spend a lot of time and not just the lawyers. I mean, I think this is what really differentiates this type of practice from a traditional practice is we have to get our staff familiar with these rules. For instance, we have a dedicated public benefits coordinator at our firm whose only job is to to review the rules, make sure they they understand the intricacies of these very technical rules uh, that they have contacts at the human health and human services department that they can call that they are developing educational materials for us and so it's it is a constant process like i said these are you know there's whenever there's a change to the federal rules that that changes everything across the medicaid program but the states are changing their rules on a very regular basis and so we have to be constantly on top of that monitoring it and really the way we monitor that is we just stay in communication with the with the various government agencies on a regular basis sometimes on a client by client basis others just kind of on a generic institutional basis you know we we send our staff to the cle's as well as the attorneys we participate in basically any type of Medicaid CLE that comes up, just so you know, we are comfortable that not only are we updating our, our processes and our systems on new rules, but constantly ensuring that what we are doing, what we have been doing, has been and continues to be
1: in compliance. Okay, yeah, because one thing I was, th- I was thinking now is that, you know, I'm trying to, you know, open this up to as many listeners as possible, get them really thinking about, like, what they can expand to that complements their background and their current practice, and I, I, it does seem like even if there isn't a, a good opportunity to expand their, their practice into something that's specific that maybe other law firms aren't doing, they really have to commit because it sounds like there's still a lot of resources and time that, to go into making it really work.
0: There's two things I think that probably have more generic appeal. One is kind of what we do you know, with our staff and how we work on a flat fee basis and what that means kind of structurally in our firm and how that changes how we, how we operate, which is kind of generic, I think, in practice. And the other was the, the financial advisors and how do you sell a value proposition to them.
1: I, th- I think it's interesting also tying in other professionals and maybe <laughs> not even the same industry. So yeah, if you want to talk about how your relationship with financial advisors helps your clients, I'd certainly like to know more about that. So, you know, we,
0: we, we rely heavily uh, to, get our, uh, to get our clients, we rely very heavily on other professionals and other personnel. So the two main types of personnel uh, or professionals that we interface with are the care providers and care managers directly at skilled nursing facilities um, they're in the industry. They are dealing with those particular clients on a day in, day, base, day out basis. So they really are the ones that can identify a client need. And, you know, once we have developed a good relationship with them, they're very comfortable uh, referring that uh, client to us. And the reason they're comfortable doing it is one, you know, it's, it's helpful for their client, but two, you know, with respect to those care providers, they're worried about getting paid. And the only people that are gonna pay them are the government. So the faster they can get an application through, or the faster they can get someone approved for Medicaid, the faster they're gonna get paid. And so that's really the value for them. And that's, we foster those relationships. We meet on a regular basis. Uh, We figure out what's going on in their business. We talk with them about their challenges. We try and help them out on a regular basis with generally without charge, so that they're very comfortable referring clients over to us because they know that we're we're helpful and we're gonna be straight with them and get their get their applications through quickly. Uh, the other main uh, referral source that we have are financial advisors. And you know financial advisors are a little trickier to deal with because they really are, you know, by nature kind of more transactional in the sense of, well, they're gonna refer you clients if you refer them clients. And as an attorney, you can't really do that. I mean, there are obviously opportunities for us to refer a client to a new financial advisor. They don't have one or they're dissatisfied with the current one, they ask. But you know, from a fiduciary standpoint and just best business practices, you know, we can't just create some sort of pri quo quo like that with a financial advisor. So we have to really sell them on a different type of value other than just referring them to new clients. Uh, and typically, you know, what we are looking at is, uh, you know, financial advisors, they work on a percentage of assets under management. And so what we can try and do for them and what we try and, and sell them on when we sit down with them is, how are we gonna help you maximize your assets under management? And specific to this type of practice, we're able to do that in a couple of ways. One, you know, we do a lot of trust planning and those trusts are complicated. They have to be funded and they have to be administered correctly. And so what we are able to sell a financial advisor on is, hey, if we're doing this type of trust planning, we're going to recommend that they consolidate all of their assets into one place that can be centrally managed. Uh, And that really helps an advisor pick up orphan. IRAs or other brokerage accounts, and really get all the client's assets in one place, and they really like that. It makes their job easier, and they're generally getting more revenue off of that. And the other one, of course, is you know if you uh, send a client to us and we do this Medicaid pre-planning, rather than thousands of dollars coming out of their accounts every month uh, to pay for this cost of care, the government's going to be bridging that gap, and so you're not going to see the regular. Uh, diminution of those assets. And so that's going to continue to keep your revenue maximized. And that's something that we can provide to to a financial advisor without breaching any sort of duty to our clients. But that is a very tricky area for us. um, And for me in particular, because I have the finance background, because we were in, in securities litigation background, I'm very sensitive to, you know, trying to satisfy a potential referral source Um, and get them happy with us and referring business while maintaining um, an absolute duty to my clients and making sure their best interests are taken care of. And so as a part of that, you know, we don't just meet with the financial advisors and try and develop referral sources. We also do a lot of due diligence on our own on those individual financial advisors and make sure we're comfortable working with them comfortable having our clients work with them so that we can we can sleep easy uh, knowing that you know they're not gonna, our clients aren't going to be taken advantage of but once we develop that referral relationship we generally have a, a pretty good relationship with the financial advisor which down the road really makes it a lot easier for us and our clients when we actually have to start funding trust or administering trust because we actually include those other professionals whether it's a financial advisor whether it's a cpa sometimes we even include doctors into an estate planning conversation so the professionals that need to have this information are brought into that conversation and we can educate them on our client's financial plan and how it's supposed to work and so everything from the client's perspective is
2: seamless and is administered correctly this is some valuable valuable information for our listeners David, if anybody um, is listening and wants to maybe pick your brain some more or has additional questions, what's the best way to reach out and contact you?
0: Best way to reach out is always email. I know that's pretty generic, but um, my email is david at mcmfirm.com. But, you know, one thing about our firm that we do very differently is I keep my staff uh, incorporated basically in almost all communications, unless there's some reason to keep it private. So, you know, any Any marketing we do, any meetings we do with financial advisors or other attorneys, we include our staff in those conversations so that they're aware of what's going on and helps our practice run smoothly. So um, I also have uh, people reach out to our marketing director, which is Crystal Collins, and her email is crystal at mcmfirm.com.
1: Thanks for listening to the Legal Mastermind podcast. If you're interested in working with Ryan and Chase, please email mastermind at marketmymarket.com. Make sure to join the free mastermind group for growing and managing your firm at lawfirmmastermind.com. Ryan Klein and Chase Williams are the managing partners at Market My Market, one of the top legal marketing companies in the United States.